Michael Mulligan joining us, barrister and solicitor for Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, always good to be here. Michael, we've been reflecting on the state of public safety here in the city of Victoria, as well as indications with respect to risk in public spaces, issues uh, said to be caused ostensibly by repeat offenders and other matters. And you want to touch on this issue as well today. Yes, I think it is a, a worthwhile issue talking about uh, to discuss both the uh, suggestions by the mayors and to explain how the uh, bail or judicial interim release system uh, actually works. Mm-hmm. We're uh, aware of that. Yeah, because I don't have a, uh, a fully developed understanding of it. You, of course, serve as defense counsel at Mulligan Defense Lawyers, so you know all about it. How does it work? So here's how it works. The the concept with uh, judicial interim release uh, is that when somebody's been uh, arrested and alleged to have committed an offense, our starting point, of course, is that a person is presumed to be innocent. We don't presume the person to be guilty uh, and immediately begin um, sentencing them or punishing them. Uh, and as a, a corollary of the fact that we presume people to be innocent, uh, there's actually a constitutional protection uh, that provides that a person is not to be denied reasonable bail without just cause. Uh, and you can easily imagine how, if you didn't have that sort of protection, the idea of the presumption of innocence would be awfully hollow um, if uh, you get arrested for some relatively minor offense. And I tell you, uh, well, you've been arrested for shoplifting. However, uh, while you're presumed to be innocent, you will need to remain in jail for six months waiting for your trial. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not going to seem uh, like uh, much of a presumption of innocence for you as you uh, sit languishing at Wilkinson Road, Penitent- or Wilkinson Road Prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... That's the starting point, and that's been the starting point for a very long time. Uh, And there has not been uh, some recent change uh, that's altered that. And so um, it's been a little bit of a a head-scratcher as somebody who actually does this work when there's been suggestions by the uh, mayors that somehow uh, some legislative amendments, and they were referencing Bill C-75. Yes, yes. Somehow that... Uh, has had an impact on those principles. It has not. Uh, that bill is, is, they've referenced it in their press release, and obviously somebody's given them that information. But what I've just told you about mm-hmm. is nothing new. Mm-hmm. And so the, the way it works is when the police arrest somebody, except for some very serious offenses like murder, for example, mm-hmm. right, where a person would actually have the burden of establishing Uh, that they should be released. There's an exception for very serious things like that. The presumption is that a person would be released unless uh, the uh, Crown could establish that their detention was necessary for one of uh, a variety of reasons. And the the principal consideration on bail, whether you should release the person to await their trial or whether you should hold them in jail waiting for their trial, The first consideration would be, is the person going to show up, (laughs) right? Yes. And so the first objective of bail is make sure the person's going to show up in court to deal with their matter. Uh, And so uh, in that regard, you would look at things like, has the person ever failed to show up before? Uh, Do they have have any connection to the community, right? Do they have an address? Do they have a, you know, is there some reason to think the person's going to take off if you let them go? Uh, The next consideration would be, is it necessary to detain the person in order to ensure the safety of the public, 
victim, witness, um, or prevent them from committing some other criminal offense. Yes. Right? So yes. it's necessary to detain somebody for that purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and there you would have to look at, for example, what is the nature of what the person is alleged to have done, right? Mm-hmm. And so if a person is alleged to have, um, let's say a person had a history of violent offending, and they're arrested, and there's a concern, look, if you let this person go, they're going to commit some other offense or harm somebody. We need to keep them in custody to protect the public. That's what that provision is intended for. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you would have a very different analysis if you said, look, uh, I've got a person here with uh, that I've arrested for shoplifting. Yes. Uh, You would have to ask yourself, are they going to show up in court if they are released? Uh, If so, Uh, Is it necessary to keep that person in jail for a number of months in order to protect the public? Um, And so you're going to need to look at what is the nature of the offense? What are they alleged to have done? What is their history? Is it necessary to do that? And then there's a final circumstance in which you can detain somebody, even if you're satisfied that they are going to show up in court and that it's not necessary to detain the person in order to uh, protect the public, prevent other offenses, uh, you can also detain somebody for serious cases where you've got a, based on the need to maintain uh, confidence in the administration of justice, where mm-hmm. you're dealing with a serious offense uh, and a strong one. So uh, not to single out the mayors as an example, mm-hmm. but let's say you had a public official who was alleged to have committed a serious offense on video, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So you say, right. well, look, they're not going anywhere. They never That's very before. unlikely in my knowledge, right? but I can't get into why, but yes. Right. They're not fleeing. They're probably not doing it again. But you might say, look, this is a strong case, very serious, right? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. we've got you on videotape, uh, you know, stabbing your spouse or something. You might say, well, look, uh, even though you're not going to fail to show up, it's an overwhelmingly strong case. It's a serious matter. It could be necessary to detain the person in that circumstance. Now, I should also say that The way these things are analyzed is that uh, people are usually released on bail uh, on conditions. Yes. Uh, They're not simply, uh, although there's a presumption that a person is going to be released, if it is necessary to uh, ensure that one of these things is accomplished, like making sure the person is going to show up in court or keeping the public safe or keeping a witness safe or any of these things, yes, uh, a, a judge can impose conditions on the person's release. And that's common. Mm-hmm. Um, and so conditions would often include things like reporting to a bail supervisor, uh, advising them of your address, uh, not having any weapons, not possessing alcohol or drugs, uh, Uh, not going to a particular area, not having contact with particular people. Uh, And so the idea is that you can impose conditions on somebody, and then you would need to look at um, whether it's necessary to detain somebody, bearing in mind that you're able to impose those kinds of conditions, right? So you Mm -hmm. might say, look, uh, I have a concern that this person uh, might not show up because they are um, homeless and they don't have, uh, they previously missed a court date uh, and they don't have a calendar, right? Mm-hmm. So you yes. might say, well, to make sure they're going to show up, you could impose a condition saying you're going to report to a bail supervisor on a regular basis and we're going to keep tabs on you. You have to advise where you are, keep in touch with them to ensure that that risk of the person failing to show up would be dealt with. And if you, a judge concludes that it can be adequately managed by the imposition of conditions, then they could choose to release the person. Mm. Now, so that's how the the bail or judicial interim release system works. Mm-hmm. The they a number of years ago to add some efficiency to it, rather than having the police keep every person in 
that they arrest, bringing them to the courthouse for a judge to make these decisions. The the law now permits the police to decide uh, if they think the person should be released on uh, conditions, Uh uh, and it allows the police to do that without necessarily bringing everyone down to the courthouse uh, to have the judge decide whether that should be done. Uh And that makes good sense, because sometimes the police would say, look, this person's got no record, they have no history of failing to show up, uh, you know, all we need to do is make sure that, you know, Bob stays away from Steve because they got into a fist fight. And so the police officer could say, look, I'm going to release you, but you're not going to be allowed to have contact with Steve and you can't have any weapons and you can't have any alcohol and you need to report to the bail supervisor. Here's your paperwork. Court's in two weeks. Where you right. go. Uh, and so there is authority for that. But bail is not a, a system which is intended to punish people nor is it a system intended to impose rehabilitative orders on people. The purpose of bail is to make sure the person is going to stay out of trouble and come to court, right? Uh Bearing in mind that they are presumed to be innocent. We don't start punishing people or imposing conditions on people who we presume to be innocent. Uh, And so we do have a legitimate and serious issue with people who are mentally ill, addicted to drugs, uh, who are... Uh, engaged in uh, criminal activity uh, often because they find themselves drug addicted, mentally ill, and on the street. Yes, All of those are very serious issues, and they have serious issues in terms of uh, businesses operating, uh, in terms of people feeling safe in their community. They are serious and significant issues. But the answer to those issues is not to try to use the bail system to detain people in prison Hmm. who are charged with relatively minor offenses. The law doesn't permit it. The Constitution doesn't permit it. And that's not how we operate. We operate on the basis that people are presumed to be innocent. That's not to say we shouldn't be doing things to intervene and assist so that people aren't engaged in some of this activity. That's going to mean things like providing adequate services to deal with people who are mentally ill, providing adequate services to deal with people who are addicted to drugs. Because what do you think is going to happen if you have a a group of People who are ho- many of the people who are homeless, of course, are both mentally ill and or addicted to drugs. Yes. And so if you have a group of people who are mentally ill, addicted to drugs and have no home, you are going to produce a circumstance where there is going to be public disorder. Yes. You're going to get cars broken into. You're going to have uh, businesses disrupted. You're going to have windows broken. You're going to mm-hmm. have graffiti. You're yes. going to have problems. Yep. Um, uh, and the answer to that problem, those problems, which are serious problems, is not to allow the homeless people with mental illness and drug addiction uh, to uh, hang around on the street with no supports, wait until somebody shoplifts some food or something, and then try to hold them in prison for a number of months uh, to then be released right back to where they were. That's not the solution to the problem. And what happens is that the police department and the criminal justice system uh, are what winds up getting engaged when there's nothing else provided, Yes, right? It's the yep. last bastion, right? And so if you have no mental health supports, no proper treatment, and you have a bunch of people who are homeless, the police are sort of the last gasp. They're the ones who are getting called when the mentally ill person, uh, right, is engaged in some disruptive behavior because yes. there's no one else left to call. Mm-hmm. And that's really not fair to the police. It's really not fair to all the people who are um, 
uh, impacted by that behavior, nor is it fair to the person who's uh, mentally ill and having some kind of a crisis or breakdown. Uh, and that's where the intervention is required. And the intervention is required to address those problems, not to say, well, look, we're not going to address the problems. We're not going to fund any of those things. And instead, uh, we're going to try to solve that problem by having the police go and intervene when the person's putting graffiti on the wall uh, or stealing a muffler or stealing some food and then try to have the person held in jail for a few months. That is not the solution to the problem. Um, it would be unconstitutional, ineffective, and unfair to everyone involved. There is work that needs to be done here. There are things which need to be done to improve the circumstance, both of the people who are dealing with the disruption caused by people who are in crisis and are dealing with mental illness and all of those things. Uh, and those people need help. The police need proper support. Uh, and uh, we need to address them. But the problem is not the bail system. The problem is not uh, whether we are keeping uh, enough mentally ill people in prison uh, once we catch them committing some uh, offense on the street. That is not the solution to our problems. I appreciate that it is going to be frustrating, right, if you're a police officer and you're left with, oh, my God, I've got this mentally ill person that I keep arresting them for, you know, stealing food or something, right? Obviously, that feels, I'm sure, like a frustrating state of affairs, but we are not going to solve that problem by keeping the mentally ill person in prison for a short period of time and then releasing them. Uh, that's not a recipe for treatment, help, or any kind of a long-term solution. And so work is required here. There are legitimate gaps and problems, but the gaps and problems are not problems with respect to how we are dealing with uh, uh, judicial interim release decisions for people charged with minor offenses. Could I get you to help me understand some words that were spoken on my show on the 11th day of March or around the 11th day of March this year by Attorney General David Eby? Because he talked about how there had been a change in judicial interim release, but that it arose through the interactions within the courts and not legislatively. Here's what it sounded like. been a little bit more reluctant to send people into jail because of the risk of uh, COVID transmission and, in the sense, becoming uh, far more consequential for someone than was intended um, and so uh, I think the courts have been alive to that, and they've been considering submissions from defense counsel about that. So uh, people may be seeing some of that as a shift. Um, it's coming from the courts, and we don't have control over how the courts sentence. Um, but the attorney general talking about a shift, saying that you know there may have been a shift, and this is why, but it wasn't from them. Your thoughts? Well, I think there, particularly in the early days of the pandemic, uh, I think there was some consideration given not simply by the courts and by the Crown, but also by the police, yeah. right, in terms of uh, how people were being uh, dealt with. Uh, and there was, I think, particularly in the early days, some consideration given to whether it's appropriate to hold somebody in prison for a relatively minor offense where the consequence of putting the person in uh, in prison uh, particularly before we had vaccines, was putting their life in jeopardy. And so uh, there were decisions made, I think, in the early days when, you know, the police would arrest somebody for the kind of uh, sort of public uh, disorder offenses that are going to be common for people who are homeless and mentally ill, things like shoplifting or minor assaults or mischief or um, those kinds of breaking into cars, the kind of things that are going to occur. 
And there would be some consideration given to, look, I've just arrested Bob here, the mentally ill, drug-addicted person for stealing the coins from a car. Uh, and there might be some consideration given to, is it appropriate to ask uh, that that person be held in uh, jail for a number of months until the matter is dealt with, uh, given the risk to their life of doing that and the desire to uh, not have the uh, prisons overloaded at the time when there was real risk of transmission and no uh, vaccine or other uh, things available. So those things were given consideration, I think, by everyone quite reasonably in the criminal justice system to make it function. Yes. Uh, but there hasn't been some radical change in how the judicial interim release system operates. That that piece of legislation that was referred to in the press release um, there were some changes to the sort of language used to try to simplify uh, the language used in the criminal code for bail. We used to have things like uh, a recognizance or an undertaking. They tried to simplify that by using consistent language like a, now they're all now called release orders. So they tried to sort of simplify the language and to streamline it a little bit, but uh-huh. the principles did not change. Hmm. Um, and the Supreme Court of Canada for uh, quite some time has been trying to give guidance about um, what it means to not deny people reasonable bail without just cause. Um, and there have been many cases over the years trying to make clear that, you know, it's not appropriate to be, uh, you know, detaining people for uh, considerations that are d- apart from what legitimate bail considerations are, like keep the public safe, make sure the person's going to attend court. But bear in mind, of course, they're presumed to be innocent, right? We don't start from the proposition that, Everyone the police arrest are inevitably uh, going to be found guilty. Uh, and so what? one of the implications of that is we don't start on day one punishing them. Uh, we uh, presume them to be innocent, and we don't simply hold everyone in uh, jail uh, on the basis that we presume them to be guilty. Uh, and I should say, uh, even if that weren't the case, uh, we shouldn't be uh, reserving assistance for people uh, until they commit some minor criminal offense. We, we should be providing proper mental health and addiction services to people who need mental health and addiction services, uh, not uh, on the basis that somebody got arrested for stealing change or food or doing something of that sort. That's not an appropriate threshold for it. Um, and so work is required here. There is, we have an absence of uh, things that we legitimately need and the frustration that that produces is completely understandable. Uh, but the solution to the problem is, uh, in my respectful view, not uh, the one that was identified by the uh, mayors in Victoria and Esquimalt. Indeed, and as I pointed out in commentary yesterday, I'm not sure if you are aware of it or not, we have the same federal government that presides over the criminal justice system in Esquimalt, Saanich, and Oak Bay, and they haven't seen the same sorts of problems that we have seen within the municipality of Victoria, suggesting the federal legislation is not sufficient to cause these issues, rather they are far more complex, as you have articulated. Yeah, and, and the, the legislative change that was referenced there didn't have a substantive change in terms of how judicial interim release was dealt with. It wasn't as if before the changes to that language we were uh, holding people in prison, uh, waiting their trial on any time you arrested somebody for you know breaking into a car or stealing food or something, uh, the, the prison would be uh, full of people. Uh, that's just not how we operated before or after the piece of legislation that was referred to. And so uh, that, in my view, is just a, a misunderstanding of uh, 
of how that system works. Interesting. Let's take our break. We're a little late for the break. I apologize, but thank you so much for helping us understand these matters. Our guest, Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. He is a defense lawyer. He serves as criminal defense counsel. He knows how this system works, and he's helping us better understand it because, of course, the system has become yet again a matter of debate as we examine the issues that we are facing in our community as well as beyond. Quick break. Back after this. Unfortunately, Michael, I've let uh, Farmer too much of the time go by. We've got two and a half minutes left. What else would you like to discuss during today's segment? Sure. I think in two and a half minutes, I can uh, alert everyone to what's going to happen to the uh, rail line uh, up to Nanaimo if the federal government doesn't uh, do anything about it in the next 18 months. Um, And this comes out of a court of appeal decision from earlier this week. We, of course, have the rail line that's not been functioning or used. uh, And so a court case was brought by uh, First Nation uh, through whose uh, reserve the uh, rail line runs. Uh, and their complaint is that uh, when the rail line was constructed back in 1912, uh, there was a uh, order taking uh, part of their reserve land to build the railway, for which they were paid $650. Uh, and the money was, or the land was taken on the basis that it was necessary for the purpose of building the rail line. And because the railway has not been used, it's now basically uh, sitting uh, uh, unused because of its condition. Uh, The First Nation has uh, brought now a successful application in the Court of Appeal to get their land back on their reserve. Uh, And the Court of Appeal has concluded that they are quite right. Uh, And uh, on a two-to-one decision, the Court of Appeal has uh, uh, concluded that the federal government has 18 months to either get the rail line working again, that is to say, pay for it, uh-huh. or the First Nation near Nanus is going to get their land back uh, because the $650 they were given uh, at the time uh, was on the basis that the land was necessary for the railway. And given that we don't have a railway uh, running there, otherwise they get their land back. And so uh, perhaps that should be a, an issue in the uh, federal election that's going on right now. It's uh, essentially use it or lose it, uh, and the clock is now ticking in terms of whether the fed- whether the federal government is going to uh, lose that uh, uh, or not. Interesting, because there are implications with respect to traditional territories of the Esquimalt peoples, I believe, but I'd have to look that up, because I, I was aware of this story a couple of years ago. I wasn't aware that that was the outcome, though. Wow. Yeah, I mean, the history of it, of course, is that the building of that rail line was a term of union. When BC joined Confederation in 1871, the agreement included Canada building the rail line. Um, And and, uh, there was, unfortunately for BC, a Supreme Court decision from 1994 that concluded that the federal government, while they were constitutionally obliged to build the rail line, didn't have a constitutional obligation to continue to run the rail line, uh, which is in part why the rail line isn't running. But if they don't get it running uh, 18 months from now, uh, the uh, portion of it uh, that uh, runs through the uh, First Nation that brought this case uh, gets it back. So the federal government needs to make a decision pretty promptly about whether they're going to fix the rail line and get it working. And if not, that's going to be the end of the uh, that's going to be the end of that part of it. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Always a pleasure, Michael. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Have a great day.